Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhow, a therapist, artist, and writer. And over the next two episodes, I'm going to be talking to Opal co-founder and nutrition director Julie Church about the BMI, or Body Mass Index. Chances are that you've heard of the BMI before, either at the doctor's office or in gym class when you were in third grade or in some reference to weight loss. But today's episode is about the history of the BMI. The story begins with Belgian astronomer Adolf Kedele's search for the average person, quote unquote, and ends with BMI being actually widely used to measure general health. So we're going to be talking about how that happened and whether the BMI is even a credible indicator of health in any way at all. Hi, Julie. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So can you give us the lay of the land in terms of the history of the BMI? Yeah. Yeah, the history of the BMI is super fascinating. This is one of the reasons I wanted us to just get into more of the depths of it so that our listeners could have that. And to start, just BMI as an index, the body mass index, is a numerical value of your weight in relation to your height. Okay. So it's a mathematical equation of your weight divided by your height squared. Okay. And where did that get created? It came out of um, an index that was created by a mathematician, statistician, astronomer from Belgium in the 1800s. So he was studying a population there of actually the, even though he's from Belgium, it was mostly French and Scottish participants in his study. Okay. And he was studying kind of what could be and trying to discover sort of what is the normal, quote unquote, human. And he was using this population to find what would potentially be the the best of height and weight ratio for the human population. And he was really into bell curves and liked the way that the population study of weight and height actually plotted as a bell curve. He liked it, meaning? They always, like when you read about him, it was like he he really liked bell curves because he did other things that were distribution data like that too. Okay, so. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in in his quest to sort of find what would be the ideal, I think hopefully... You all might feel a little cringy when you hear that, especially when you think about the population he's working with in that, right? It's very homogeneous. So he's working with, it was mostly men, Caucasian, in the region of that of that part of the world, mm-hmm. right? And his work also, if you see there, some of his data from both his index, his data was used in some other sociological studies and progresses that also have very, very racist implications. So something called positivist criminology, which talked about people of color and subspecies and how there's criminology linked to people of color. Mm. We can see some of those things continue actually into the application of the BMI also, and I'll speak to that later. Yeah, and just to interject already, you, you've used the word ideal yeah, pretty quickly in describing the work that he was doing. And for someone that's gathering data, and, you know, typically when you're gathering data, the idea should be that you should go in unbiased. Mm. But to be searching from the get-go for an ideal yeah. is problematic Feels. immediately. Yeah. Rather than you go, well, you know, what's just the average here? And, and let's just plot some data points here. Yeah. Let's totally. see what's going on across 
the world or across genders or across. Right. Like some of the literature would say that he was looking for the average man, quote unquote. Okay. And then with that, though, you can see as you read through it is that then in that it was a pursuit to then become or find or be that tip of the bell curve as the average is then the ideal, is the way that I saw the interpretation Mm -hmm. of kind of what he then ended up doing or how the data was used. Does that make sense? Yes. So, okay. So then we jump forward a bit into more current American society. (laughs) And in the 40s, then the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company found this data and thought, oh, we could use this and then extrapolate that to their insurance company subscribers and then charge people on the high end and low end more than the average, quote unquote, or the ideal subscriber. And at first, within the system of the insurance company world, it was pushed back a ton from the medical community. There was not a desire to adopt this statistician, astronomer's data from across the world. Like, why would we do that? And then eventually the lobbyists and and those within the insurance company world was able to get it through. So it started to be used in what I would call more of a business sense, right, within the insurance company world and without scientific or medical backing. Mm. And then what was interesting was that it was used then for 40s, 50s, 60s, the 1940s, 50s, 60s within that framework. And then in the 70s, doctors, medical doctors, were looking for a measure to make their appointment times with their patients um, have some ease in the way that they could assess their health. So doctors were looking for a measure of fatness or percent body fat in their population to be able to do it quicker in a uh, session than other types of means. So, Do you know what they were doing before? Well, I actually don't totally know, but I know that they were comparing like doing calipers to try to check body fat or um, even sort of immersion, you know, in a laboratory type environment with fluid and, you know, like those kinds of things. So that wasn't practical for their everyday person coming in, their patient. So they wanted to find a different way. And Ansel Keys, who actually... I, we have talked about in here yes. before in terms of the Ansel Keys starvation study, but he was doing all sorts of different types of, of research, and he brought in the idea of, of this, supposedly, and they moved forward in the medical community using it. One of the things that Ansel Keys and others at the time were saying was that the body mass index, well, they, they coined it the body mass index at about this time. Okay. Um, there was 50% accuracy in terms of if this index of the weight divided by height squared would actually indicate level of somebody's level of fatness. So I just say that is kind of an interesting piece. So they're choosing to use a thing that is 50% accurate to move forward in their assessment of that. And we could talk later about if I, what I would say about that. Yeah, I <laughs> know. It's, no, it, no. Well, it's hard to, it's hard not to ask the question of yeah. why they're measuring this to begin with, because that feels like, I mean, playing devil's advocate. We're, I mean, full disclosure, arguing against the validity of the BMI, right? Like, right. we don't believe that to be a, a mm-hmm. measurement of health. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like it started as a measurement of fat. Mm-hmm. Wanting to understand what kind of percent body fat somebody has. Right. And, and people were already trying to do that in some way as a measurement of health. Mm-hmm. Y- yes. I And that would be... I. 
I don't feel like I have all of the information on that. So, but I'm assuming that at the time there started to be more and more information out there that we're doing some causation studies and correlation studies that were saying, huh, maybe there's something there between fatness and health. Mm. I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm assuming that that's starting in this zone of our history. So then they are starting to see, oh, we should look at this so that then we can determine how to treat different people. The accuracy of those studies and the way that those studies are conducted have problems too, like I would say. But they, in the medical literature, you're going to find lots of stuff that's going to communicate a causal relationship between fatness and health. Okay. Right? So I think they're starting to say, oh, well, we want, we want to look at that and so that we can have the correct interventions, quote unquote. Okay? So that's the 70s. Then we kind of have the this thing created that has this di- these different categories with the labels of, you know, underweight, normal, overweight, obese, right? And then that starts to be used in medicine and in medical practice. And one place I read to, said that in the 80s, it definitely increased in volume of use. So just a lot more use. It maybe was starting in the 70s, starting to kind of use it, but that it really increased in the 80s. So the tracking of that data, something that's important to say is that like the within the medical community, sure, I think some of that data started to be collected starting in the 40s, 50s because of insurance companies collecting that data on their participants, right? But then in the medical charts, I think that started more so in the 70s and especially into the 80s strongly to have the BMI be something that's going to be in the medical chart. Mm. So height and weight would have been before, right? right? But not this calculation then of those two related. So that happened. And then in the late 90s, uh, the National Institute of Health Obesity Task Force, which we could get into all of what that might be and why that was happening, but they decided that they were going to change the numbers in the BMI chart as to what numbers and what BMI would be the normal category, overweight, obese. And that in 1998 then changed overnight it was lowered. So 29 million people overnight changed categories. And I think one of the stats is just like, or that 29 million people became quote unquote overweight on the BMI overnight. So went from the normal to the overweight. Wow. That's a pretty significant piece, I think, in telling the story of BMI and how it's used also, just because you think about, wait, that didn't nobody's changed like bodies changed, but we keep hearing that the stats and like everybody, you know, all BMIs are increasing, weight is increasing. It's because the BMI but changed. That also is a very it's a it's a significant piece to the conversation and why a lot of those numbers then get exaggerated. Yes. It's changed the entire culture around mm-hmm. weight and our sense of like what's normal and what's not. But then it's also kind of laughable that people could just decide in an office somewhere to change the measurement Mm -hmm. and then like chaos ensues the next morning that then continues forever. Totally. Totally. Because of a handful of probably white men in a room one day. Yeah. And one thing I'll add is that Lindo Bacon, who wrote the Health at Every Size book and has been one of the pioneers in the Health at Every Size movement, will share their personal story and does in the Health at Every Size book about how when they were working on their PhD, their chair was uh, on this National Institute of Health Obesity Task Force. And Lindo came to them saying, 
wait, why is this being proposed? Why is this being considered? And that that chair and mentor person then said, yeah, go go do the research. Do some of the lit review and all that stuff and come back and tell tell me what you think. And came back with saying, well, I, I found that actually, if, if anything, it should have been increased, not decreased. And that's a whole other conversation as to what, why and how. But regardless, and so then they were like, well, why then did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's where then you get into the political complication of corporate business and everything. And they would say that of the people on the task force, a large percentage, if not all, had conflicts of interest and were employed by weight loss clinics or a part of a drug company that created weight loss drugs or, you know, had some other incentive to create a scare, right, around weight and fatness and health. And so, therefore, they would support the change in the BMI structure. Mm. Mm. So immoral. Totally. Right? Totally. I mean, I know. And I want to know more. That not? Like, yeah. even as I was preparing all of this and I've, you know, I've spoken about this, I shared this, but it was like, oh, my gosh, I, I, I want to even know more. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to go back to the 70s and I want to know what was going on with those doctors and what they were trying to pursue in that season. And then when they saw something being 50% accurate of what, like assessing what, I, I don't, I, I just want to better understand all that and think that even that juncture was so key to mm-hmm. then it being so much more integrated into medicine. So I want I want to know more. The other piece in, in this kind of history, when I think about it, especially for U.S., uh, is that it, it, believe it was right around 2004 that this, the term sort of obesity epidemic was mm-hmm. named. And it was in a medical journal, but not in an actual study or research. It was in more of a review or editorial. And somebody stated that, you know, obesity kills 400,000 people, you know, a year. And when that actually was broken down, they then had to give like a rebuttal to it and say, no, actually, if we were to break it down into a quote unquote disease state, which, you know, I stand, I, that's, that's of debate for sure. I don't agree that it is a disease state that could even be qualified as this. But regardless, in the way that they were even assessing it, for those that do believe that it is, they then came back saying, oh, no, we're sorry, it was 26,000. And that then makes it equated to very like minimal impact. Mm-hmm. And the exaggeration and the scare and the fear that gets thrown in, especially epidemic, right? Like, yeah. That gets thrown in there. Like the and plague. That was, yeah. That's, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the yeah the <laughs> totally. correlation. Yeah, and so that's six years after that those data numbers had changed too. So, so what have the implications been of using such a weight centered approach to health? Well, that I would say is because this BMI became so centralized to healthcare, non medical providers that don't know anything about the person they're standing next to thinks they can assess health now because the BMI has somehow equated health. Right. So we because BMI has been integrated into society in the way that it has now, we lot a lot of people and this is not everybody, but a lot of people have a visual mm-hmm. for what they think is a higher BMI and then has all these stereotypical stigmatized associations with that. And so in a medical context, <laughs> it, when somebody has 10 minutes to be with somebody, 
they have policies. I mean, I worked in public health and, I, I, you know, there was policies. Like if somebody fell into this category, then you had to do this kind of counsel and give them this handout and do mm-hmm. these things and check these boxes. And that is part of the systematizing of the medical care. But then I also think that that's the implications of medical care, which is missing the all the other things going on in this person's life. But the implications in our societal like treatment of each other is that we've somehow simplified assessment of health to this calculation. That simplification is always going to lead to some sort of objectification of, you know, of a body without the whole picture of what that person's life is like and what their health is like and what their relationships are like and their history. I mean, it just flattens an entire story. Absolutely. An entire person. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things BMI did also was gave a language for some of these categories or labels, I guess. It's labels, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, continuing to simplify it. So then we have the normal category, quote unquote, and then we've got the underweight category and the overweight category and the obese category. And those things just are a label in and of itself. So what does overweight even mean? Over what weight? Right. Right. So it's over that other normal weight, but what is normal weight? How do, why do we define that as normal? And, you know, he's, right, we go back to this BMI and the, mm-hmm. that is, well, okay, it's just saying that it's the tip of the bell curve, right? Right, it's just the tip, yeah. Yeah, it just means that there might be more people in that, but that doesn't necessarily more, mean. More white men in <laughs> Scotland and what was the other country? France? Yeah, Scotland and France. Yes, France. That's what you said. Yep, France. So it, in those countries, in the... yeah. Early in the eighties, in the eighteen hundreds, in the eighteen hundreds, in the eighteen hundreds, white men in these two countries mm-hmm. looked a Plotted little like this. this. Yeah, the average amount of yeah. men. Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah, yep. which which could also account for you know what was happening in those countries at that time, based off of the socio political landscape that mm-hmm. meant that people had certain kinds of jobs that were in certain kind of atmosphere or weather or I mean the the factors there too even just for the Scottish and the Frenchmen right are right. like I mean that's particular yes and probably things have changed in Scotland and mm-hmm. France even for what's normal based mm-hmm. off of you know absolutely 200 years totally so yes, yes. and I what, what you're speaking to yeah it's is that there's so much misclassification that happens then mm-hmm. too you know and one of the studies that came out in 2016 was a compilation study that brought together data from the NHANES data from 2005 to 2012, which is U.S. data. Okay. And what it came together and showed was how many people, if we are going to have this quick checklist that medical practitioners are using or we are in society are using to decide if somebody's healthy or not, who gets missed in that? Mm-hmm. And in this study, they assess cardiometabolic health. So they're looking at data collection around blood pressure and triglycerides, cholesterol, glucose, insulin resistance. So these data points that might lead to show around heart disease or diabetes. And in this data, it's huge numbers that are missed if all we do is say, oh, everybody in the overweight category should get this kind of intervention and is at risk for X. There's a bunch of people that are in the normal weight category that are being missed then and not getting the care. 
because of so much around the weight stigma that's associated in belief of the causation of weight causing health concerns and, and disease, there's a lot of people in the overweight and obese category that are getting intervention around, you know, go lose weight or you need – you're at high risk and lots of fear-mongering, yeah. okay, um, for that population. But that – they don't even have – they're not even at risk. And then there's people in the underweight category that are at risk – and they're being totally missed mm-hmm. because they they might have all the genetic predisposition and they have the other correlated things. It might be stress. It could be environmental factors, right? But they're going to be missed because the checkbox is so minimized to the BMI. Mm-hmm. So this data is very – if anyone wants to hear more about that. The other uh, piece that I, I actually don't know if they specifically get into this, um, and we'll link it on the – the links, but there also are misclassifications based on race yeah. too. So – some are saying that the BMI overestimates the health consequences of weight for the black community, and then the BMI underestimates the health concerns for the Asian community, especially in the Asian American and the African American black community in America. So those two are, again, we're not, again, simplifying this, missing uh, the real genetic component to how we all are wired differently, right. and especially our yeah, race and our heritage and <laughs> ancestors. And how that would massively impact both mm-hmm. our body composition and our genetics. Yeah, are and what we're predisposed to, you know. Yeah. Another key implication of using BMI and having such a weight-centric healthcare system is that those that land in the higher BMI, because of high stigma and experiences that they've had in healthcare, they will delay healthcare. So they have experienced so much of disrespect and embarrassment and negative attitudes towards them, unsolicited advice about weight loss, and even just facilities and gowns and equipment not matching their need, that they just avoid going. Yes. And so then they're also not getting set up to have adequate care because they are resisting going, you know. And that is a huge piece of how it impacts the overall population in our our health in our overall population. And it is true that there's just a lot of healthcare providers and environments where continue to stigmatize those in larger size bodies. And that's in the like clinical setting of medicine and healthcare. But then when you think of education and public health campaigns and things, that's another place where having a weight-centric approach has led and influenced the the, the way humans are talked about and the way the body is talked about. And so there's lots of health, public health campaigns, which by using the BMI and saying that this is dangerous to be this weight, they're then using body sizes and people's bodies up in posters and in campaigns, oftentimes also very racist, using um, a lot of people of color in these environments or people that are disabled and Having these images up there associated with fatness, which then is in our whole culture is stigmatizing and it's just reinforcing so many racist and discriminatory links for people to say that these are the people that are in these higher weight categories and these are the people that need to make these changes. And it's all legitimized by this foundation of BMI, right? So that's, yeah. But there's a lot now that's coming out to show that those kinds of campaigns in and of itself are are causing negative health implications. Yes. yes. How could they not? It's such a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thank you so much for joining us today. That was part one of our two-part series on BMI. 
Next week, Julie will be answering some of your questions about the BMI. So make sure if you aren't already, you're subscribed to The Appetite so you're up to date on when we next release that second part. If you want to follow along with Opal, follow along on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Opal Food and Body. And if you want to find more out about our programming, make sure you go to opalfoodandbody.com. And if you like The Appetite, make sure you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much to Daniel Gunther at Jackstraw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for The Appetite's original music, and to Hans Anderson for editing. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you soon. <laughs>